The guest today on this episode of Lateral Conversations is Dr. Thomas Steininger. Thomas is a podcaster as well. He hosts the Evolve radio podcast, which is a weekly podcast. Um, he has made more than 300 episodes of this. He is the editor of Evolve magazine. And I, I had the urge to talk to him And not just recently, in spite of my interview with Andrew Cohn, but actually um, since a couple of months now, because I think his work is so interesting and that I felt the need to talk to him about the ways spirituality is progressing, how we can approach a post-postmodern understanding of spirituality and his views on this topic Uh, are very very interesting so we talked a lot about about the role of spirituality and the aspects and elements of a post postmodern spirituality and in this context obviously we talked a little bit about the guru role the limitations of uh, the integral model about andrew Cohn, obviously and i think it was a fascinating talk because um We seem to come from different corners of the equation, but arrive at a similar point of, of view. So he, he comes more from the communal intersubjective part, and I for myself am coming more from the techno part, that is the, the part why, how, how is evolution of the mind, how is spiritual evolution actually working, what do we do? in our mind, in our psyche, in our consciousness. For example, if meditation works, why, why does it work? Sometimes why doesn't it work? What do we do when something is working, spiritual-wise? So, and, and I think, for, for my part, uh, a post-modern post view on spirituality must incorporate those things. How do we deal with our own consciousness how do we deal with our own spirit of, of, of the mind to to grow so but but this is my view and his view is more 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 the intersubjective part the the we space and the dialogue was for me very enriching because i think and and we agreed on this that these two perspectives have have go to go along so i hope you will enjoy this conversation. Uh, my name is Tom and Mark. All the best to you guys and good luck. Tom, thank you for joining me. That yeah, took that's the time. I'm very, very happy to be here. That you take, took the time for, for this conversation. We were just talking before about podcasting. You are the podcaster of Radio Evolve. It's a weekly podcast, but it's live in a way. And, 
And, and because I just had a podcast with, with Andrew Cohn about the role of the guru and the disciple mm -hmm. in spirituality. And I've, I, for myself, think that the, the traditional guru-disciple model is deeply flawed. And I don't think that this is necessarily uh, postmodern post to, to get to the point. You know, and, but you, 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 you seem to have a, a different approach to, to this. And what, what exactly do you understand under progressive spirituality, if I can ask so frankly now. <laughs> no, no, uh, no uh, ab absolutely. But uh, also to say, uh, I, I'm interested in the progressive spirituality. And what I mean with that is a spirituality that is in conversation with our present secular times. Mm. One other way to phrase it, I'm interested in the post-secular culture. Mm. The post-secular culture is different than the secular culture. It's also different than the traditional culture. It is an integration of secular and, how you want to call it, the search for the sacred? That's, that's the post-secular. But it holds also up the values of the secular. Hmm. That's what, what makes it post-secular. And, and that's also my understanding of a progressive spirituality. At the same time, I think in a post-secular time, there won't be only a post-secular spirituality. There always will be a traditional spirituality. And that's good. So I think that to have the plurality of uh, spiritual approaches mm. is part of a secular pluralistic society that we should appreciate. Not everyone has to go post-secular in order to be part of a post-secular culture. No, I, I know, I understand your, your argu uh, argument, but I think this is one side. You have uh, one side, one argument, one poll where you can say, okay, we integrate the former ways of spiritual acting and spiritual thinking. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think with every new stage of development, may it be psychological or socially, culturally, there are new techniques emerging. That's right. So, so when you you have like the the, the shamanistic forms and the pre-modern ways, you have like the new age, just spirituality with the post-modernity and and stuff like this. You have like religion with the. These are basically different techniques how to deal with our mind, how to deal with our uh, uh, world in a way. So and mm. and I think you have to uh, ha harmonize those both uh, poles. Yeah. Yes, and to come back also to your question about uh, the guru relationship. Mm. Um, because I'm in an interesting uh, uh, situation that way, because uh, as you know, I have been uh, a long time not only in a guru relationship that I appreciated, it was also the relationship with Andrew Cohen, and I was a very close student of him. And um, my thinking about guru relationship also emerged out of my own history with my relationship with, with Andrew and uh, the Enlightened Next project that, to my understanding, uh, did some really important work. And at the same time, also, uh, we really did uh, some uh, terrible mistakes in, in, in what we were doing. And if we talk about the need or the role of a guru in a post-modern post, uh, context or in a progressive context, I think uh, first we have to we have to ask the question: What is a guru? And there are many ways how to answer that question, and also many uh, I think legitimate question. 
legitimate ways uh, how to answer the question. I would go to the basic understanding of a guru, the basic traditional Hindu context, uh, also using the Sanskrit uh, uh, meaning of the word. He is the one who, who is uh, uh, fighting the darkness, who is bringing light. Okay. And I think in any true spiritual context, there will be always people who just by who they are, are kind of bringing light into existence. And I think this is important. And there are different ways how to interpret this, even the way to bring light into existence is a particular way how to talk about it, but let's leave it that it's a very, at least beautiful image how to talk about this. Mm. And uh, we also can talk a lot about why these persons are and how, how they got to this point. But I, th I think that if you can call it God realization or enlightenment or just a true humanity or a transmission of something, I think uh, these people are part of reality. And uh, I know people like this and uh, 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 my relationship with Andrew was also a trust in this and also my reason why I stayed uh, for so long uh, uh, with Andrew Korn is because in spite of uh, all contradiction that I was aware of, hmm. there was a trust in something that I found important and that I found uh, very powerful and meaningful. Um, so I think there's a role uh, for, for a guru, but, um, and that's getting more personal. Uh, the particular work that we did in Enlighten Next, as I understand, understood it, and, uh, as I'm understanding it, was something, Andrew called it evolutionary enlightenment. It had an intersubjective quality. It had to do with the realization what is possible between humans. Is there something that uh, is there an enlightened relationship possible? And I think the the very hard, tough work that we did uh, at least brought me to experiences that um, made me very convinced there's something possible where we are aware between us that something that is beyond us, uh, if you call it a higher we. Uh, if you uh, call it a co-creative field of human consciousness, that is important not only for spirituality as such, but also for the evolution of consciousness. If you see it in the context of our human uh, history of individuation, because you, you can understand at least the last 10,000 years of human history to a big degree, when you look at it from a point of consciousness, uh, as a history of individuation. And I think, and that's a, a philosophical position, and we can talk about this, that we are right now at a turning point where there's something uh, coming in that you could call trans-individuation, where uh, individuation always means, of course, uh, separation, because I only can uh, make claim of being I if I make a claim of being of there being an other on the other side, so individuation is per definition a form of separation that is necessary. There's some there's something very positive and powerful about individuation. 
but it also creates an alienation for, from the homeless as such. And I think the many experiments that we have right now about refills, uh, uh, collective awakening, or uh, the, the experiments all over the place in this are as important as the birth of individuation several thousand years ago. I, I, I would, I would go. Uh, sorry, when I, when I, when I. Um, if, if I just may, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, just one thought uh, 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 to finish, because uh, that's basically uh, uh, what, what I wanted to bring out is that this is something that we were trying to do in Enlighten Next. And this is something that Andrew was pushing also as a guru. But beside his, his mistakes and failures, whatever, as a person, there's a, contra uh, there's a contradiction, contradiction between the guru structure and this emerging field. You, you can start this, but you, you, you have to go beyond the pyramid hierarchy to really go the full way. I think part of the reason why Enlighten Next failed is because uh, he was not willing and we were not capable together with him to go beyond this contradiction. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's more um, inclusive than this. Um, I, I just re uh, recently uh, read a book by Eric Guns. He's an anthropologist mm -hmm. from the United States and he, he is the founder of the, um, this generative anthropology. And he argues, and this is very, very interesting, that um, at the moment when the apes become men, you know, we mm -hmm. as a human species, as we now know it, emerges, speech emerged, and at the same point, the sacred emerged, because there, there was a moment, um, and, and he has like this, this very famous example, you have, you have like a carcass or some, some dead flesh, and there's a group, and, and everybody wants it. But at some point, all members of the group knew that if if they take the meat, everybody wants to take it also, you know, so there was like competition and the object, the meat became like an aura of endlessly desirable, but even so endlessly dangerous, because if I want to take it, the other one wants to take it too. So, and this was the moment that a symbol emerged, a symbol mm -hmm. for the thing, which is what is to be desired. And this symbol was sacred. And so, and he argued that with the emergence of speech, with the emergence of language, the sacred at the same time emerged. And, and this is a very important point, the, the community, the, the we space, as you say it, because if I don't go in conflict with, with the other one about the desired object, we have some form of harmony, we have some form of we space, you would say. So it's like in the DNA of our culture, of our becoming human, that wherein this, the language and, and the sacred is embedded. It's like yeah. a moment 50,000 years ago where all of this came to fruition. Everything developed at that point. Yeah. Um, interesting. I, I don't think I would agree with everything. Uh, one thing, I don't think that, the, uh, uh, that this would be the emergence of the sacred. Maybe it would be the emergence of the recognition of the sacred. And uh, th that's interesting because our, the question is, does the sacred need language to exist? Or is the sacred something uh, that is uh, beyond the construction of language? Uh, th th that's one question, but that's a question in itself. 
And this uh, is a complicated question. I don't absolutely know. complicated question uh, because it, it, it's a question of what is sacred. Is there more than a utilitarian understanding of the sacred? Sacred something basically that is kind of a higher value because we agree that it makes sense that we share or things uh, things like that. There's something that has a positive positive value. Um, and on the other hand, uh, I completely agree that we emerged as a we space. In fact, I think, uh, and I think this transition uh, from uh, the primates to human is a very fantastic uh, thing to really observe. I did for some time, I mean, only on video, uh, but you can do a lot on, on YouTube. I studied um, um, uh, orangutan and uh, chimpanzee and, 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 and gorilla uh, tribes. Uh, there's so much stuff and just studied them uh, and I was amazed that many of the qualities that we usually claim to be human mm -hmm. are just completely present uh, and uh, I really I so I, I was quite quite surprised there's one scene where uh, I will just never forget it, uh, although I just heard on, on YouTube, where a, a gorilla mother was staring at, at her baby uh, for a couple of minutes. And just for my recognition, I mean, it can be protection or whatever, I could not deny that there was a soul connection. Okay. Whatever that means. Mm. Uh, but, but there was something that I would think that the term soul connection would be a, a fair way to describe at least there was love. Mm. Uh, let's uh, let, let, let's put it that way. But something emerged um, with the uh, discovery of, of of speech and language that basically uh, there was a whole different universe opening up, the universe of symbol, where something that is absent could be present. That's basically mm. what what language opens up. That something that is present, uh, that is absent, is present. We can talk about something that happened 500 years ago make it present as we talk about it you only can do that with language that's true and i think that uh, all our human history uh, we just came out of nature basically not in that way not separate and find slowly slowly and spell dynamics and other models bring models for that uh, our individuality in this which means i'm not just my tribe i'm not just my natural impulses i am i and even more so, I can make a choice who I am. This and and, and the postmodern time seems to be peak time, where we really realize. I mean, it's modern time is already all about this, but uh, postmodern time seems to be even more peaking into this. The deep understanding, I exist on my own, my uniqueness, hmm. including my freedom of choice. I can choose to participate. Uh, in this conversation or not. And this is unbelievable uh, powerful because it's a form of freedom that only exists with, through individuation. Uh, and as it is the nature of freedom, uh, it, it, it gives me the choice to separate also from the wholeness of the process and say, I don't care about anything, mm. I only care about myself. That's the birth of narcissism. Mm. If you process, if you everyone else, uh, all I'm really interested is me. I mean, narcissism is not by chance the disease of our time. 
And right today, we have the elections in America. Maybe the biggest narcissist uh, uh, in the political scene right now will become American president. That's true. It's uh, hopefully unlikely at this point. But he, I mean, he is the incarnation of American narcissism in a way that's unbelievable. That's true. And you look, I mean, you look, he only sees his own world. He sees nothing else. It's all about his self-importance. So this is the disease of our time. But the disease of this time is built on a strength of recognizing that I do exist. So I think uh, what is spiritual, powerful, important right now, how can we hold this individuation and reintegrate with the process as a whole? That's what mm. I would call trans-individuation, that uh, where it's to transcend and include our individuation process. Mm. That's, I think, something that is new right now, and that's something that I find interesting, and that's, uh, I think, at least my uh, particular uh, leaning of progressive spirituality is about. Yes, I mean we can at least agree that the sacred, in one way of in, uh, one way or another, uh, accompanied us uh, as a as a humankind more or less from the beginning. I I don't know how, I don't know when, mm. and went through different iterations. You know, mm. so that we came up now with this kind of progressive spirituality which you are describing now. So you. You're talking about trans-individualization. So mm -hmm. this is how, how do you approach that in your work? How do you facilitate that? Mm -hmm. uh, that again relates to your guru question. Uh, because I think um, what, what is important right now is to really create an awareness of the living process uh, between us and that you, you can put wherever you want uh, between you and me right now as we are talking or uh, uh, between uh, a milieu of, of, of people that we are in that's integral uh, progressive whatever hmm. our time humanity you can expand it to, to the cosmos as a whole to, to really create an understanding that there is a living co-creative aliveness between us on a consciousness level that we can connect to and that is more than me and you. It's more than my separate self-sense in this. There's something, for example, in this conversation between you and me that uh, transcends you and me, that it becomes its own, its own co-created thing as we are talking. Okay. And but isn't that in itself intersubjectivity? Just, that, just is, that is intersubjectivity. So, that is sphere is what Sloterdijk calls it. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the sphere the, that we are building now and in which we are navigating now. Yeah. And I think, um, and this is not just a spiritual context, uh, uh, this is a context about uh, evolution of consciousness, that um, this changes also how we understand uh, human interaction, human hierarchy. And uh, what played a big part in my understanding here was one insight that came from Frederick Laloux and his reinventing organizations when he was talking about second tier authority. And he said something uh, that uh, made a big impression on me and uh, a lot of the work is inspired in fact by this uh, uh, impression. He said in, in, in an integral form of second tier authority or leadership as he puts it, uh, the leader 
takes at the same time more leadership and less leadership than in the first year. And then he explained that it's less leadership because there are less decisions uh, going through his desk. Mm-hmm. Basically, uh, of course, he's not ta- he's talking about business development. So uh, we are talking just a company or whatever. And he says that he or she uh, is deciding less to this, to that. Uh, he, he basically lets uh, everyone else be part of this decision process in, in a way that is very unusual in traditional forms of uh, cooperation, company, uh, human organization. So in that, he, take, he she takes less authority. But at the same time, he or she takes responsibility for the co-creative field in which this co-creative decision process is held. Hmm. So one has to be very aware of the dynamics of this field, of the potentiality of this field, of disturbances. And in the end, you also really have to put your foot down when basically uh, someone comes in and really tries to destroy this whole field. Hmm. Potentiality. So in that sense, it's more leadership, it's more authority, but in, from a different position, you, you are caring for um, the vessel uh, of this co-creative intersubjective field, hmm. and you also have to be part of a trust field. You only have authority, author, real authority is only authority that is given out of trust. It's not very written into something. It's just because I recognize, wait a moment, you have a lot to say about this. I should trust you in this. That, that gives you authority. And I say, wait a moment. I recognize uh, you have much more to say about this than I do. I better listen. Or the other way around, I realize, in fact, I have more to say about this. Or I, I shouldn't hold back. I ha- have to give something here. And ideally, at least, uh, this becomes a co-creative field uh, where we trust and find out who has to give what. And uh, a leadership position, uh, ideally that f- those people who are most capable of holding this process as a whole. And that's very different than a traditional organization and it's that's very true. different than, uh, than a traditional guru relationship. Yes, that's true. But would, would you say that for a progressive or, so to speak, a post, postmodern spirituality, and let's, let's focus on that point, that, that like a we space or that uh, intersubjective sphere or whatever we call it, that this is paramount? Or can you, can you think of other ways uh, implementing or, or thinking about a post, postmodern spirituality? I mean, is this necessary in a way? Or um, and, and the whole goal, or can you think of other ways of dealing with it? Mm. Uh, the easy answer is I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, on one hand, I think I really think that um, my understanding of uh, where we are in the evolution of, of human consciousness and culture, uh, trans individuation is an important part. So it, it seems to be important. Uh, that's the reason why I really pursue this, why this was part of uh, why I found that what we did in, in, in Enlightenment Next was so important, Enlightenment Next was so important with all the failures in that. 
At the same time, I think um, that also a post-secular spirituality will be pluralistic. There would be just one way how to do this. Mm. It will be all together in a dialogical space. And a dialogical space you only can hold if not everyone is saying the same thing. And a dialogical space lives from from a living difference. So I... I very much think, no, it's not the only approach. Mm. At the same time, I think it's important. I mean, of course, you have to have a dialogue about these things, as you have to have a dialogue about what was postmodernity, what was modernity, or what is post-postmodernity. I mean, that without dialogue, nothing, nothing ever gets done, you know? So, um, but, but I wonder... You, When I think about progressive or, or post postmodern spirituality, I, I always come down to those two points I already mentioned that you that we at one point have to integrate what what has happened before mm-hmm. developmental wise mm-hmm. you know um, for example the the inherent violent and paradoxical structure of of spirituality and our relationship with the sacred I, I mentioned this in the last podcast when you for example meditation in itself to quiet the mind and to get rid of bad feelings and all that stuff and but you have to sit there for for one hour or two hours or even longer and discipline yourself and in a way it's a violence against yourself to end all violence you know it's 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 a little bit par- paradoxical in nature you know um i don't mean violence in a way that um that it's physically abusive or socially but But in a way, mentally, you, you have to insert control and discipline. And this is a form of, a benign form, so to speak, of violence. You know, it's like this, this guy, uh, René Girard, I mentioned him in the last podcast too, who wrote extensively about the relationship of, of the sacred and violence, you know. So, and... This yeah, I, would, I wouldn't call it that way. I, 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 I wouldn't any kind of effort to go beyond my comfort zone, I wouldn't call necessarily violence. But I understand no, no, you, I you, you I can call it that way. I, I just wouldn't. No, it's, it's, I mean, it's like when you, I, I, don't, I don't talk about leaving the comfort zone. You know, mm-hmm. you, can, you can leave your comfort zone and uh, with flow, basically, you know, with passion, with something which ignites you and, and with, with an impulse, you know. But, but the way you have lived in the, Uh, Hinduistic and Buddhistic uh, monasteries. You know, this is deeply con- uh, a controlling, disciplined way. And in a way, it's a form of self-violence. It's not, it's not a bad form of violence, but it is. So it, can, it, it can be. Uh, I think the difference would be if, uh, if it really comes out of um, an inner willing to, to put some stress on yourself, If it's not just a mental construct you put on yourself, but there's something, you, 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 there's there's an inner longing to something, uh, where where you are fully behind, although it really takes effort. Mm. I would see that different than something that either another person puts on you, or you put just out of an ideology on yourself. Mm. And I agree that even in that can be a good thing, but uh, there I, I can more see the violent aspect that you are. Kind of relating yes. to no, I, um, you know the, the in German the, the uh, old German word for viol- for violence Gewalt comes from Walten, 
and it just means being strong and to dominate. It mm. doesn't necessarily mean I cut myself or I, mm. I cut everybody else. So just like the, the way. But I wanted to say, if you want to approach a post-postmodern spirituality, you have at one side integrate all those things, how even in our integral spirituality, how deeply ingrained it is with Christian values still. You know, those are things which are worth talking about. You know, this is, and this is important. But on the other side, it's important to, um, yeah, to, to, to analyze, okay, what, what are the uh, original post-postmodern impulses and novelties flowing into spirituality? You know, what, what are the new aspects? And you have to harmonize those two things, I guess. Yeah. You know, and so, and, and when I think, for example, this WeSpace you, you are talking about is very, very, very important mm -hmm. to be aware um, how we are creating a dialogue and how we are shaping ourselves and creating ourselves through this dialogue, you know, to, to, to put it easy, you know. But on the other side, like um, the other kind of thinking about individuality, you know, it's important to understand why, for example, does meditation work in some cases? What and when or why does it not work? You know, to, to understand what, what happens in the mind. There are lots of people who are meditate and simply have no passion for it. You know, mm -hmm. not, nothing ever works. But some people are naturals. But what does it mean to be a natural in meditation? You know, what, what are they doing exactly in their mind when they are successful, when they are approaching a non-dual state? So, and I, I think this is something which goes beyond postmodernity, like an, an, an awareness of how does spiritual development actually work? Not... You know, socially, culturally, yes, but even so, in my mind, in my consciousness, what do I have to do to where, um, go into samadhi? When exactly does it work with pranayama, with all those things, you know? Yeah. I think that, that there's something where I would have a different angle than, than you seem to have. Hopefully because, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I wouldn't focus it... Uh, in the way uh, you seem to do uh, on the individual. Because I, I think uh, part of what uh, is happening right now is that I am more than my individuality. That doesn't take away from my individuality, but even my individuality is in fact just a function of an undivided process of cultural evolution. Just my uniqueness, from a certain perspective, is just an impersonal function of, of, of a process of humanity, of, 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 human, of human culture. My eye sense is something that this process created for maybe certain purpose. Depends how you want to interpret this. So, But are you neglecting uh, the, the upper, upper left quadrant of the Aqua model? You know, because uh, your argument sounds like social constructivism, that everything we can experience about ourselves is an epiphenomenon from social processes. Um, now in, I, I would have some questions on that, because I think that the Aqual modem is very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, uh, it is also 
a form of schema schematic thinking mm. because I, I, I don't think that the simple four quadrant scheme really portrays reality. In fact, it is part of the separation process to really think that there's a separate upper left quadrant that exists on its own. Um, I, I have more a phenomenological uh, take on it again, also from Heidegger, Milieu Bonteur, where I think that there is no understanding from one without the other. Mm. Uh, that uh, that even uh, the so-called upper left quadrant, my eye sense, is in itself not really separate from the other quadrants. That's a way how to talk about this. Uh, but without going into... Uh, no, 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 let's say that. Uh, this is very interesting because I think exactly the other way around. But again, let's, let's sorry, yeah. go, go ahead. Um, I, I really think that... Uh, Part of what uh, is important right now is uh, to deeply understand human alienation. And I think uh, the part of um, oh, oh, part of the, uh, the cultural evolution that we observed in the, in the last um, three to four hundred years since the birth of modernity, and with the birth of modernity, uh, nearly immediately the birth of, of romanticism, uh, there was always this counterpart. And it's also interesting how modernity and romanticism uh, have two different stories to tell our human development. One is the story of progress and the other is the story of alienation. And I think both are true. And how... Both is true in that sense that every narrative is true more or less. Not not every narrative. I think the narratives that that, that I just uh, a lot of what Trump is saying. I don't I don't say it's true. <laughs> I think it's for forty percent of America. It's true what he said. Yeah, I, I know, but uh, um, uh, I I wouldn't agree with the postmodern statement that there is no truth. Uh, I I think that's uh, it's also a performative contradiction. Nobody really can say the sentence without basically claiming some truth. Um, that's true. But uh, that's 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 a question in in in, in itself. Uh, so I don't think every, that every kind of narrative is just true because it's a narrative. But I think that these two aspects that are that there's alienation and there is progress are, are, are both true. And at the same time, I do think, and that's part of I think the um, weak parts of uh, the integral movement as far as I can see it right now that in kind of counterposing itself against the narrative of the postmodern time, it is an overemphasis of the progress part of it and the, uh, uh, a too big neglection of that there's really an alienation process that we need to understand because uh, this alienation process is part of uh, what is really creating troubles right now uh, from climate change to uh, a, a lot of social cultural crisis. So we have to understand that our human existence is part of a living reality that's much bigger than our individuality. But but isn't individualization, I mean, there are different um, parts and, and levels of individualization. You can't compare the individualization which leads to climate change is the same which is um, enforced uh, by, by the Wilbur models it's not the same you know there's a way of growing 
and and integrating those things. N not that I'm not agreeing, you know, I think... I think yes, yes uh, and no, because there's one thing uh, that is, uh, I think, a background pattern that uh, usually doesn't come into the picture, that, that even to, to, to see human development as something that you can uh, change in a technical way is an instrumental technical relationship of consciousness that in itself is a certain form of consciousness that really uh, only started with the birth of modernity in that. This technical instrumental relationship that started also with the uh, uh, really birth of the subject-object divide with the Descartian philosophy mm. uh, is also ingrained in some parts of integral thinking. And even if you find different techniques how to deal with it, as long as you're still thinking in a technical way, you're reproducing this object-subject relationship that is part of what human alienation is grounded in. And um, in that sense, uh, it's a complicated process. But I, 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 I would say that part of the integral thinking is not aware how deeply it is still rooted in a modernist uh, uh, pattern of thinking let's put it that way hmm. I, I no no I, I would totally agree it's like um, when you especially if you in my thinking in my point of view is like when you compare integral theory to other post postmodern philosophies and approaches to world you, you can actually see what aspects of them are similar and and which are more or less post postmodern and which are modern or, or postmodern, but as far as um, integral spirituality, I, th I think it's, it's deeply postmodern. If you observe how, how humankind has these iterations with the sacred and how these different social fields and social cultures develop, shamanism, religion, Postmodern spirituality, and when you when you look at what actually happens, there was with with spirituality uh, liberation more or less from 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 ideology and from church, and uh, and a way of integrating other techniques from other cultures. Nowadays, you can do uh, a Buddhist meditation, a shamanistic ritual, and some Hinduistic stuff all at the same time. But this is this is basically postmodern. So, and when when you when you look at the, that trajectory and see what can happen, I think what will happen is that we we will liberate ourselves from the techniques itself. Mm -hmm. You know, so that that we know how these developments, these mind techniques, will work. You know, it's not only mind; it's spiritual. You know, it's like a self self-discovery in a way mm. and and if if we know how it works we can apply it in every moment of every life and i think this is a natural progression yes yeah. i would be very careful with that because of course uh, but this is just uh, uh, because, because i think uh, if you try to understand and think it as a technical relationship you you're very easily already in a certain perspective that you are grounded in that it's maybe part of uh, uh, the separation itself. Uh, I'm not saying that there are no techniques how to do this, but to approach it as a technique uh, in itself is an expression of a certain consciousness towards what you're doing. 
uh, that um, uh, could be questionable. Let's put it that way. How so? Because a technique is is something that someone does to achieve something. And, and that uh, you already have established a, a someone subjectivity, a something object, and an instrumental relationship from one to the other. That in itself is not wrong, but it's very different than doing a ritual. But you, uh, could also, but you can also argue that going into a Wii space and doing this is a technique. Uh, exactly. Um, that's uh, also the danger of understanding it as a technique. Because I think when you understand it as a technique, I'm not saying that there are no technical aspects to it. Yeah, I think it, it again is a transcend and include situation because uh, there, there is it's also not... It, you, can say that an instrumental relationship in itself uh, uh, is something you, you have to get rid of because all our rational development and cultural development uh, is based on that and there's a lot of positive things in that but there's a limitation in it and one has to be aware of the limitation and as long as one mainly sees it as a technical relationship I would think one is not really aware of the limitation in this Hmm. So in the vSpace work that we do, uh, usually there the, are the two poles. One pole uh, is a dialogue process, in, in, which you also can use in whatever uh, uh, pragmatic context. Hmm. You, you can use it very much as a technique. I think the core of it is something that really only, only opens up if one goes beyond the technical relationship of what we're doing here. Mm. I mean, would you would you agree that every approach has like a... You mentioned the good, the, the light and the dark side, you know? Would Shadow, you, yeah. So, would, what, if, if, you, if, if you observe the, the, the way of the Wii space, the way of mm. the Wii space, this was, would be a good book title, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> No, what, what, what are the downsides? I mean, what, what if somebody says, okay, I, I want to move beyond postmodern spirituality, but, but this communal thing, this is not my thing. Mm -hmm. Would you say, no, what, what, how would you deal with this? How, what are the downsides? For, for, first, I have no claim that everybody has to do this. Uh, I, I, as, you, as I said before, I... I I learn a lot from Christian monks, and I think what they do can be very uh, powerful. Uh, I learn a lot of uh, Buddhist uh, practices, uh, Tibetan practices. Uh, I learn a lot from uh, from from integral work. There are many ways how to go about this, and I think part of a dialogical approach is, um, and that's. It's something what I, what I emphasized in the integral conference we were together in, in Hungary, where I said a, a mature integral is less a theory, it's more a dialogue. Mm -hmm. And the, the main difference in perspective with this, a theory is something I can have. A dialogue is something that I only can participate in. And that seems to be simple, but I think it's very profound because a dialogue only exists with the acceptance and the appreciation of the other. And to see that we are together in something that I'm not holding. 
because otherwise I could do a monologue about it. No, no, so, of course, I see it. Mm. So, so, so I, 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 it's a deep appreciation of the other, which does not have to be, mustn't be relativistic, because uh, it, it, it only really uh, comes together if it's going somewhere together. And then mm. there's a whole discussion, what's that, what does that mean? I don't say that it's easy. So um, uh, this, this is one side. And, and the other, uh, uh, as you are questioning, so what is the shadow of this rework? I, I find it very interesting that you're asking because it's something I, I came across just recently in, in, in our work. Uh, because, of course, there is a shadow to everything, I would assume. Hmm. And, of course, the shadow of what you're doing is the, is the thing that you are least capable of seeing. Hmm. Uh, uh, that's, the, that, that's, that's the nature of it. And uh, since... A, uh, couple of weeks or a couple of months, uh, we are talking about our work from two as uh, three aspects. Okay. Uh, and how these three aspects uh, hold together as one. And 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 the first aspect, uh, I would say, is the I aspect. Uh, and there's a particular way we talk about it, which I find very powerful, is Ich bin gemeint in German, I meant. Okay. Because there's something when you talk about it that I meant in whatever this what's going on. I meant this is not a cognitive recognition that I meant. This is you mean I, I was meant. No, I am meant right uh, now. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I am meant right now in, in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But I am meant whatever that, that hits back to me in my own individual responsibility. I meant to respond. Mm -hmm. That I think is very powerful. Then there's a, there's a second dimension that's that is mainly uh, uh, touched at least in our work in the meditation practice, uh, which I would call the sacred mystery, the sacred unknown. There's something of uh, the space of not knowing and the sacred nature of not knowing that you particular uh, open up uh, in the meditation process, um, which is different uh, than uh, the focus on the eye sense. And then there's a third, a third uh, uh, part of this, which I would call the co-creative nature of life. That life is a co-creative field hmm. uh, as this dialogue. If it is a living dialogue we're doing, it's a co-creative field. And our work is mainly also from, uh, from the work from uh, Enlightened Next focused on this co-creative field and also... Uh, the foundation in this meditation process, okay. uh, a recognition of the sacred mystery if you, mm. uh, of letting go. Uh, but uh, the danger of it is that you don't, even if you understand that this always means me, that you don't emphasize this individual responsibility in this enough. It's easy to get lost in this co-creative process and just basically go with the flow. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. This is what I'm addressing. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So this, this I would say, is, uh, is at least a possible shadow in this. No, no, and, and this is wh where we get common ground, because I, I, I think when, when we are arguing about the other side, about the technical aspects, mm. you know, there, there is always the shadow that you, that you get lost in the way of, um, of the technique and, and not engaging in a social dialogue anymore, in a way which is... Um, comforting and which is encompassing you know yeah. but and, and I agree I think all three aspects are absolute valuable and absolute necessary 
a big reason for me for doing this podcast, yeah. yes, um, to go around that way, is to have this dialogue. For me, it's it's a natural thing, you know, yeah. to 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 look for it and to to go into that space and have that dialogue and and create something in a way. Mm. My my life would be emptier without it, you know. But mm -hmm. my starting point. Is is the other part? It's it's the the technical part. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like okay, I I'm I'm looking for the 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 technical principles of evolution, so to say. You know what what is happening in in the spirit of 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 my understanding of spirit and how and this is the second um, second step. How can I translate it, transform it in within communication? Exactly. I think that's completely valid. Um, I think in, 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 the, in the dialogue process, it's also important uh, to look into what kind of dialogue are we talking about? Mm. Because dialogue is not dialogue. And there, there are many ways of very pos positive and powerful dialogues that are not exactly what I mean and what mm. we call emergent dialogue. Mm. Uh, this emergent emerge dialogue process has a specific focus point and it has to do again with individuation trans-individuation because most forms of dialogue like uh, non-violent dialogue or Bohmian dialogue at least to a degree are very much focused on the free flow between individuals mm. which is valid in itself but it stays in the perspective of the individual mm. and uh, there's there's something there's a lot you can do, but there's a certain perspective that you that that you're holding in this. You're meeting the others, but it's always an interpersonal relationship that you're kind of holding with this, mm. which I would uh, uh, call different than a, what I would call an intersubjective uh, dialogue, where there's a field consciousness, mm. of this co-created field, uh, where the gestalt of the whole. Is bigger than the persons that creating the gestalt. Yeah, yeah I understand. Mm. And that's a, a very subtle recognition that uh, is also easier to understand intellectually than experientially, because usually in the dialogue work that we're doing, the transition point uh, where it really starts to be interesting is when people start to be aware of this co-creative field as a living conscious field that is real. It's not an idea, mm. but something uh, that that is real, and then. That's the starting point because then you, as soon as people start to see that this is a reality between us, mm. are, you, you stop t talking about ideas, you, you're talking about realities between exactly. us, mm. phenomenological realities. Yes. And then uh, still you can see this from an individual point of view, which is you look as an individual and seeing this gestalt of the, of the field. Mm. But you also can, and I think that's when it really becomes interesting, you, you, you can basically start to uh, change identity and see that this process is not really separate from myself. Mm. That to, at least to some degree, I never will give up my individuality completely, mm. but some degree I can look, so to say, from the eye of the process itself. Mm. And that the, then the potentiality of, of any dialogical field uh, shows very differently than, than just individuals meeting. And if I may <laughs> just explain it, because uh, that's very much the work that, that we try to push into, that's also kind of what we developed uh, from the Enlightened Next work, and where we 
I think went beyond that in our, in our way. Uh, I think there are three levels where, where, where this intersubjective co-creative field exists. One, it, 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 the first level is it exists anyway. If you are aware of it or not, uh, anywhere where there's a relationship, this relationship field or this co-creative field exists already. Uh, but it changes its nature, I would say, that's at least my experience, completely when enough people in the process are aware of the field as such, and you, if, if you, say, you can say so, that the field becomes self-aware through the people participating in the process. There's a kind of a critical mass where something changes in the process, where people realize, wait a moment, there's this field between us that is real, and it's not separate from us. But yeah, I know. I know. Give me just one one minute. This is exactly. If I just may say okay. the third level, just to to to, fit, to, fit, to finish that, then we can go into that. That, that. Something very powerful happens when when this happens in a room uh, where the recognition is, wow, this is real. This is this is something you can talk from. Mm. And then uh, that, uh, there's a third level, uh, which I think is in, as important the transition from the second to the third as the transition from the first to the second, because you can be aware of it. Are, but to be aware of it does not necessarily mean that you really care for it. And uh, which means, oh, there's something between us that's beautiful, but basically I'm interested, what do I get out of this? But if enough people care for this shared co-creative field more than the individual interests, the power of this process becomes a completely different dimension. So I'll leave it that. And <laughs> no, no, uh, this was very interesting what you were saying because um, we, uh, I was mentioning Eric Gantz uh, at mm -hmm. the beginning of our conversation. And this is exactly what he meant because what you are describing is that the awareness of the communicative field and that you are shaping it within the dialogue, this is something you hold sacred. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's, it's your uh, interpretation of the sacred. You know, you... you, you understand it as something sacred. But it is only possible by talking about it by, um, by language. And this is his argument that via, via language we are, we are able to approach the sacred. It's interesting because I would not talk about this in this way. <laughs> And I can tell you why. Okay. Uh, because I would not say uh, the way you said, uh, uh, I call this sacred. I would say, no, I value. I, 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 it, it was an. It was an yeah, yeah, no, how, how you quoted him, mm. yeah. Uh, uh, I would not say, I call this sacred. I, I would say, I value that. It is, a, it is of value for me and us. That's different. And then I would say, there's a recognition that this, this is not only for a high value, mm. but there's a, there's a sacred nature of this. And I, I, I would say that's different than just saying well, this is important, this is very important, to call it, to recognize something is sacred nature of it. And I can't even define what I mean with the sacred nature. I even think it's not important to define what the sacred nature is. Uh, I find it much more interesting that there's something where I think that the word sacred is appropriate in this. Because the sacred can show up in, in everything. The sacred can show up in a leaf of a tree when you recognize something That there's something yeah, but we're not talking about the leaf now. We are talking about no, I, your, I, your approach on, on no, this we space. 
Yeah, but what, what 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 I try to work out is a difference between valuing something mm. uh, and recognizing the sacred nature of something, which I think uh, which I would would distinguish and not equate. I mm. don't think it's the same thing, although they go together. I agree with that. Mm. Let me let me just um, because we um, just recently mentioned Andrew Cohn because um, you you talked about the three aspects or pillars of those things, individuality, meditation, just to yeah. put it short, and, and this co-creative dialogue. So, and, and you mentioned that within Enlightened Next, you could get lost in that dialogue. Did I, did I get that correct? Did, did you say that? No, no that, that was more self-critique of what we are doing right now. Ah, okay, okay. Because I, because uh, I was thinking, I, because the concept of the evolutionary impulse is, is in a way deeply individualistic. What I found interesting and uh, 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 fascinating, but not, I I'm, I'm not happy about it, is that Andrew, as I hear him talking right now, uh, does not have a full appreciation of this uh, intersubjective work that we did. Okay. Mm. Uh, that I, the way how he's emphasizing the guru role right now, mm. he, he is emphasizing uh, to a degree personal relationship that, in fact, he did not do in in quote-unquote in his best time as I understand it. There's something of what I think was the most important part of our work uh, that he, and I see it also in, in his later works, was not focusing so much anymore on. And uh, the guru relationship, where it's all also about the relationship uh, between uh, the uh, student and the guru, Uh, seems to be for him now more than ever uh, uh, very important. Uh, what I was mostly fascinated in the, the work with him was when he was pushing something beyond that. Hmm. And I find it fascinating and also sad that I feel either he has forgotten about this or it's not important anymore because this was the more, most important part of ourselves. And uh, the question is what, why Why, why, why is he doing that? But uh, that's a question on its own. It's more a question to ask him. <laughs> he's the only one who really would know the answer to that. <laughs> no, that's, I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm, I'm deeply into this, this topic. There was a discussion on Facebook. Sometimes Facebook has valuable discussions. And there was like a comparison between this way of dealing with disciples, this guru way of dealing with disciples, especially in the case of Andrew, Andrew Cohn, um, which was compared to SM techniques, you know, where you have a domi um, dominant and submissive part, and the, the dominant exerts specific techniques by which the submissive has a, a state of flow, a state of flying, a state of openness, you know, so and, and his way of, of dealing with Disciples was compared to this power hierarchy thinking. And I, I found it very interesting. You know what I find very interesting? That Andrew right now is using the word disciples to describe his relationship. And this, that's a word that he never would have used before. Mm. He would uh, never have used. He would never. Because he uh, really made the point that he does not want disciples. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that Uh, none of this happened, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure that, uh, let's say, the most mature part of his community was not, not at all in a disciple relationship with him. But really, 
uh, try to, in the student-teacher relationship, develop a partnership. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that uh, things all went wrong. There were a lot of mistakes in that. But uh, it says a lot that right now he's using a word that he really uh, never would have used. He would have ridiculed the word. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it, say, it, it says something that he's going somewhere where I'm not, not, not really happy about because it does not touch the best part of our work. Mm. Where even with the mistakes that he did and we did, it was about finding a partnership in a student-teacher relationship. Mm. And uh, that's uh, uh, something where we just disagree and um, where I, I also... I, I'm wondering where he's going, what he's doing right now. Hmm. We're all wondering where the world is going. This is, I think this this is like a symptom which we are seeing in the world right now. You know, it's 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 for me it's it's an indicator. You know, if you have Erdogan and Trump and all these narcissistic people, and I think this is like a fractal. You know, you it emerges everywhere, and and those patterns. You right. Know, hmm? And it also emerges in the spiritual world. Because hmm. I think that's also part of uh, the guru relationship, which I find very interesting. Because in our time where narcissism is such a big uh, uh, cultural disease, uh, the, guru the guru position to take is one of the most dangerous places, uh, the most dangerous position to take. Hmm. I don't think that it's by chance that's quite many of the post-modern uh, teachers, like Gaffney, like, uh, like Genpo Roshi and others, uh, when you look, there's a lot, when you look at uh, that really looks like a narcissistic uh, relationship to the guru relationship. It's very different when you have a guru, when you have a guru identity in a traditional context, mm. right? you're basically embedded in a traditional uh, culture. Mm. But in post-modern culture, I'm not saying that it's impossible to do that, but I, I say it's a very difficult thing. And everyone who is assuming a guru identity should really look very carefully because uh, the shadow of our time is narcissism. And the guru position is one of the easiest way to leave your narcissism. Because basically, uh, if you take the, uh, the guru identity, uh, there is no feedback anymore because you are the light. No, exactly. You have to if you if you want to pursue a guru career, you have to go in countries and 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 to places where there are still traditional um, worldviews. You know, and I I have to I I think that if you if you living in this culture, you have to apply modern or postmodern or even post postmodern mm. techniques of 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 dialogue in a way. Yeah. And the question is, how can you do that? And how can you do that also without just flat, um, uh, flattening everything out? Uh, like there wouldn't be any kind of more experience and, and in this way also a hierarchy of experience. Mm. How, do, how, do, how do you do that to not do it in a completely green way? It's interesting. But there was something uh, in your conversation with Andrew Cohen that I found fascinating when you were uh, kind of pushing on his um, mythic guru identity. Mm. And when you were asking him, uh, so uh, were you then in a mythic consciousness? Mm. Because uh, he, 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 he made the point that, that he uh, basically identified himself with a mythic guru. Mm. And, and I think you rightfully asked the question, so you were in a mythic consciousness uh, uh, to do this. 
And um, at least for my observation, mm. it's obviously true that Andrew was not in a mythic consciousness, but okay. in a postmodern consciousness. Mm. So the question is, uh, why would a postmodern uh, person assume uh, or identify with a mythic? This is why my thinking exactly why. Uh, with, with, with a, yeah, with, with a mythic guru identity. Um, although your consciousness is a postmodern one, and um, one way to explain it uh, is, uh, I think it serves a certain pattern in the postmodern consciousness, uh, which is the narcissistic "I am the one." In a way that uh, hardly any other positions do. So, I, I mean, just to, uh, just to discuss it here, because there, there may be other possibilities. But that's a, the the question is valid. Why does someone who is obviously not in a mythic consciousness assume a mythic identity? For, uh, I think one way how to look at this: How does it serve the identity that he or she is in? Yeah, but I'm. I don't know. Um, I, I I don't have uh, information how living in Foxhole or, or in all these years how it were. But if you if you're a guru for maybe 20 years or 25 years and you assume that identity, this mythic ghoul role, yes, and you do this every day for 20 years, uh, how how can you reconcile it with the with the postmodern consciousness? The, the, I, I don't understand this. You know, you, how, how will you separate it if, if in every instance you have to play that role? How no, you, you, you also can identify this when, when basically uh, you think that the you are the world, which is the postmodern narcissistic assumption anyway. You don't have to be Uh, you, you don't have to think about yourself to be an enlightened guru to have this assumption that you are the world and basically everything is about you. All we narcissists tend to do this in our time. Mm. That's, that, that's a narcissistic uh, position of all of us, at least potentially. So uh, the guru position just gives you a, a, a profound, unique way to do this. Yeah, but it's more than just a guru position. It was he, he created a system... Yeah. Where everybody accepted this and 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 lived with it for more or less like 10, 20 years, as far as I understand. Yeah, uh, uh, the short the short answer it's, it was much more complicated than that. <laughs> Because just to put my position in this, yeah. Because I, I remember very much when I decided to really uh, uh, jump into this, and I was very aware that this is a high risk to take. And I have to take it in my own responsibility. There was something in what Andrew was doing I had deep trust in. Mm. And there was all the time through, uh, again and again, things I questioned a lot. And I was always in this contradictory position that there was things I trust in and things I really questioned. Mm. And it was not that uh, I, I thought that basically... Uh, uh, Andrew is the truth or anything like that. I, I, I thought that uh, I, to some degree I still think that there was something that was worth this experiment to trust beyond myself. Hmm. Not, not, not because I think that uh, someone is perfect and always right, but because I, I really wanted to jump into this experiment to go beyond myself. Because in the end, if, if you analyze it, you have two choices. 
you trust you trust something beyond yourself or you trust your own ego hmm. these are basically the choices yes so one way to go about it or at least experiment so, uh, with it is to to find someone or something that is uh, that is uh, more trustworthy than your own ego and allow this to be a leverage point to be on, to be beyond yourself yes so to some degree this experiment failed to some degree I'm very grateful for it because it showed me something uh, uh, and it, it allowed me to open up to something that I still uh, am very grateful for. Also grateful for, and, for Andrew yes. uh, uh, playing this part, uh, part in this. So it is more complicated than usually the narrative about it is. As it is, usually narratives have to be less complicated than the reality uh, because otherwise it's difficult to tell them. Hmm. Let me let me just connect the dots because this is very very interesting because um, we, we talked about being in the world and and um, Manuel Molina the the woodcutter the the, the old mm -hmm. grand dame from New Orleans who makes the fabulous dishes and those people who have the don who have a diamond who have like some form of um, genius which is mm -hmm. going beyond their ego this is a, this is more or less the whole point for me in a way so and and. What I discovered in, in that podcast with Andrew, and despite all the abuses and whatever, I, I, I think he has some form of diamond or don or something to, to offer, you know, some, some original, unique thing. And I think this is which makes it interesting. You know, this is what makes Manuel Molina exactly this thing. This is what make, makes Manu Melina for me interesting, or the woodcutter, or every person who has something really unique to offer, who has specific talents, for lack of a better word, and, and uh, furthermore has a way of contributing this to society in a way. And this yeah. is the interesting thing, and one, one thing more connecting the dots. I think, like, a, my understanding is that a post-postmodern approach to spirituality has to facilitate a way to this kind of individual uniqueness through dialogue through meditation through all those things but i think this is this is the golden thing that we all want you know we all want that at least it's part of it yeah i, mm. I mean i would see it the other way around are you we have to develop our uniqueness in order to play our part in the process mm. but basically it comes to the same thing yes And with Andrew, I, I agree, he has something. At the same time, the, the reason why I don't support him coming back as a spiritual teacher, because I really think that he hasn't looked deeply enough into this question of the mythic guru identity, or the guru identity, and uh, also our narcissistic motivations in that. Yes. Mm. And that's, that's my personal take on it. I may be wrong about it. But... Uh, I, I have had a lot of conversation with, it, with him about this, and that's How, how I feel about it, that there's something that he can do, hmm. but uh, I would not step into the role of a spiritual teacher uh, before I really, particularly with everything that happened, hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm really facing this in a way uh, that, that goes to the bottom of it, uh, of, of this moti of motivation of self-concern hmm. in that. And, uh, That's my perspective on it, uh, uh, and that's the reason why I have a trouble that he's stepping into this role right now. Because my expectation of someone who really takes the role of a guru hmm. 
is that he really is clean with that. And uh, that doesn't take away that, that he has a lot to give. And, and uh, uh, there's a lot of also he gave and, and that has to be also honored. And also, I think if he, if he will make this, uh, I, I really I would I, I would embrace him. Uh, <laughs> I, I, would, I would be very I would be very happy to do that because I really wish him the best in that. Mm. But, but the, the conflict between me and Andrew is that I really have a different perspective on this, mm. and he really doesn't wanna he, he really doesn't see that way, and he doesn't wanna hear what I have to say in this. Mm. I I share the sentiment in that much that. That I thought the better way would have been if he if he would have choose the kung fu way, you know, after leaving the monastery, work with the railroads, work uh, with the easy people, and do good stuff there. But jumping on the old horse again with the with the teaching and with the guru, with all the discussion, I find it complicated, you know. So, what? Yeah. It's, but it's, also, you have to understand, uh, I. I, I was I was his student for uh, for twenty years, mm. uh, and for for me this is not a theoretical discussion. It's 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 very close to my heart. Uh, it, it, it's a big part of my adult life, mm. and there's a lot I really online what we did, and uh, I'm also aware of a lot uh, that really went wrong. And also to make a point, went wrong is not just his mistake; it's also our mistake. Uh, uh, also, authority is a co-creative reality. Although the, the responsibility is, uh, is held in different ways, but ju just to bring that in, and I really think that it's very important that we uh, come to conclusions that are of, he of help, because I think well, what, whatever uh, came out of an enlightened next experiment, uh, to make it something that can be of service, at least to, to a degree, can redeem also the mistakes we, we made. Hmm. Learn from it so that we, that, that we can uh, make this part of human experience, part also of the postmodern experience, how to deal with uh, postmodern and post-postmodern spirituality. And uh, what we do here with Emerge in Germany is, is, is an attempt in this, and our higher we work and, 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 and this, 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 this focus on co-creativity is an attempt in that, and uh, I'm not saying it's the answer. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's just what we what we try to do with this. Hmm. Let me let me just ask one one more thing because while while on that subject, one one particular particular thing in the interview with Andrew Cohn I find very interesting and I thought about it because it, it's not only applying to him but I guess to a lot of guru figures, authoritative figures, you know, in a way with patri patriarchal culture, he was talking about pushing people. Mm -hmm. in that interview and pushing people um, to leave the comfort zone mm -hmm. you know and we talked about violence which is mm -hmm. you, you could argue it's a form of violence you, do, you mm -hmm. don't have to but you could yeah, sure, so, sure. but how, how how do you observe that now when you look back to your time then those moments um, how how did you feel then? How did you feel now about? The, I and I don't want to have specific examples, you yeah. know, but general feeling. Yeah. First, many things that uh, that I discussed right now were not things that I was aware during the time. They were not open. Mm. So I, I 
so, so I more relied to my own experience and there was enough happening basically in the time where I was in um, and uh, in the circumstances that, that I was because aware. you were not there in Fox Hollow or what I was not uh, I, I was not there in Fox Hollow uh, most of the time I lived a couple of years there and uh, I was living in Europe in the other time and okay. I was not there also in the first 10 years and a lot of that happened hmm. basically most of things happened in the before I really came into this Oh, okay. Uh, Before different you time. Come into the, came into this, I, I thought this was happening uh, like the last ten years or so. No, no, no. It was uh, the other way around. It was uh, ah. more happening in the in the earlier time, not in the not not in the latest time. Okay. Not in, not in the very early time. I would say that there was there were some years uh, uh, before that, but it 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 it, it happened. Uh, Maybe in the first third of the Enlightened next time, something like that. But this is weird. His narrative was that he lost his way in the last 10 years or so. And before that, he was always right, hitting the mark. This was his argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 okay, this is, you have a different. Uh, I, I have a different. I mean, he also takes more to, to kind of go, uh, talk about this. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Because also that is more complex than this. Mm -hmm. Because. There is, there is something where I think that a lot of the pushing uh, in, in, in the earlier time, um, well, let's put it the other way around, that in, in the later time, it was more and more just about himself, the way I experienced, because he was more concerned about his uh, career, let's put it that way. Uh, and I wouldn't say the same thing about his earlier time. Um, but talking about uh, pushing, um, the main the main question for me is the question of motivation. And there, um, the tricky thing for myself is that my perspective changed because I I I really I was one of them who really tried to give Andrew uh, as much trust as possible. Even when, when he stepped out, I said and I was in conflict with some of my friends. Uh, Andrew needs time to resolve this, and we, uh, you, you, you just have to give him time. But as I feel right now, that at least to this point, uh, uh, he, he has not really uh, looked into the core of this, uh, and doesn't seem to be willing to. Uh, this uh, creates questions: What was his motivation all the way along? How, how mixed were the motivations all the way? Uh, because I I had the deep confidence that although he was flawed, there was a fundamental motivation in him that I could trust. And I'm not so sure about that anymore right now, as experience. So that changes for me the story hmm. in retrospect. Hmm. Because if somebody really has uh, coming is, is is coming from to be of service, if somebody is really coming from a pure heart and at the same time is qualified, both has to go together. Uh, pushing can be a good thing at some point, uh, but uh, it's a tricky and very dangerous thing because it very easily become become violence. Mm. What is what in in this? And I I I have to kind of see things different right now than I saw it when I was in, but it has to do also how I I I don't trust. In the same way, what I trusted in when I was in there. Okay. Tom, 
thank you, thank you very much for your time that you did this Thanks. podcast with me. That was a pure pleasure. Yeah, on my side. <laughs> it's, it's great to talk. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm.